We turn to the book of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10. We read the first 22 verses of this chapter, and we do so in connection with the fifth petition, forgive us our debts. Noting here the basis of that prayer in the wonderful sacrifice and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest daily every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, with pure water. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. On the basis of this passage, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 51. 
Found in the back of our Psalters on page 27, we have question and answer 126. Which is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive one another, to forgive our neighbor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this petition occupies a perfect place in the prayer that our Lord taught us. If we prayed the previous petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we've understood the meaning of them and the implication of them. We know ourselves then to be sinners. We realize how far we've fallen short. We realize how different our outlook and our perspective and our pursuit is than what Jesus taught us to have. We're not pursuing the hallowing of his name as we ought. We're not pursuing his will like we should. His kingdom is not in our focus. Our focus instead is what we want and what we desire. And how frequently do we not seek the things here below? How frequently are we not inclined to rebel against his perfect will, and to transgress his will. The child of God who knows himself feels the need for forgiveness as he prays the Lord's Prayer. And as he prays the Lord's Prayer and comes then naturally now to this petition, he knows his great need for it. Note also the fact that this petition follows the requesting of our daily bread. That's in accord with the principle of 1 Corinthians 15.46, that the natural is first and then afterward that which is spiritual. And the idea is simply being this, that not that bread is more important than forgiveness, but that in terms of our life, bread comes in order of time. We need to eat. And only after we have our food and drink are we able then to know our need and to know the reality of our sin and need for forgiveness. So that practically we need earthly things in order that we might continue in the Christian walk and the Christian life. Note too that this petition comes before the petition for grace in the midst of temptation so that we have forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. God gives us first to pray forgive and secondly then to acknowledge the battle in which we find ourselves in our need for deliverance from those temptations. This reminds us of an extremely important truth. And it's a doctrinal truth that we're familiar with. Justification precedes sanctification. God declares that we are righteous in Christ. And as a result of that righteousness, we know the wonder of our forgiveness. And as those now who are forgiven in Jesus Christ, we desire to keep his commandments. We desire to do what's right. God works in us that sanctifying work of his spirit by which we pursue the things of his kingdom. Even when we pray for forgiveness, we realize that there's a longing in our hearts for the complete deliverance from evil and for the final perfection of heaven. And so we pray the petition and then immediately the next follows. 
Now, a number of questions confront us this morning that we want to look at. First of all, what is sin? Secondly, what's the forgiveness of sins for which we pray? And how is forgiveness possible? On what ground, even, would forgiveness be a reality for us? This is not a popular petition. And we catch ourselves sometimes, not even including the petition in our prayers. We're not as conscious of sin in our own lives as we ought to be. When we pray this petition, we don't do it often with the urgency that it demands. And we give evidence that we're too willing to come into the presence of God without that understanding of our sin and confession of it. Note this too, beloved. Finally, in way of introduction, this is an incredible prayer. Forgive us our sins. We're going to look at the fact of forgiveness this week, and next week we look at the second part of the petition, as we forgive our debtors. Sometimes we hardly dare to pray because of the overwhelming awareness and sense of our sin. But other times, we pray so flippantly, and we're not even thinking about the debt we owe to God for what great things he's done for us. Now, important it is that we take this petition on our lips with meaning, but also that we take this petition on our lips with confidence. And we look at that glorious confidence. God has looked down upon me in mercy, and he has forgiven me for Christ's sake. What a wonder. And it's that which motivates us then to thankful worship and to magnifying and exalting his name. We look this morning at the prayer for forgiveness, noting the necessary petition, noting the bold petition, and noting a confident petition. Matthew 6 and Luke 11, as you're aware, differ with regard to this aspect of the Lord's prayer. They use different words to refer to debt, one debt, the other sin. And so a head of catechism here is quoting Matthew 6, which uses the word debt. Luke 11 uses the classic word for sin, that is, the missing of the mark. God's children, regenerated and sanctified, frequently yet aim in the wrong direction, the opposite direction of the glory of God. And one can study all of the different words that the Bible uses for sin, transgression, iniquity, and all the rest, and one comes away very edified. As each of those words describes a nature of sin and a specific aspect of that sin that we so quickly and easily fall into. Now with regard to this, debt and the missing of the mark. Those are the two aspects of sin that are on the foreground with regard to this petition and this prayer. Even when the Holy Spirit is within us, even as new creatures of Christ, we're still not aiming our lives, our thoughts, our motives to the glory of God as we ought. And it's not the case that we're aiming that way, but then often we just miss the bullseye and we get a little bit to the side. Tragically, often in our lives, we're not even, we're not even directing ourselves toward God. We're going the other way. So that we know what God demands of us. We know what God requires of us, and yet we're pursuing something entirely different. We're doing what we want to do, and we'll pursue our own will. We understand also that our best works are still corrupted and polluted by sin. We carry with us natures that are totally depraved. And those natures that are depraved, 
though now God has blessed us with the wonder of regeneration and as regenerated children of God now, we are no longer totally depraved. We are new creatures in Christ, yet that depravity of the nature yet clings to us and affects everything that we do so that we will never be able perfectly to worship, perfectly to pray on this side of heaven. And this humbles us. This drives us to our knees. It makes it so that we pray all the more fervently for the deliverance that God is pleased to grant us. Humbling then our sin is. And the reality of our sin works in us then this petition and the next. Now what's the idea of debt? The idea of debt here is that God created us good. He created us right. And God then made us so that we are able to honor him and glorify him in everything that we do and say. But what do we do? Instead of doing that, we instead turn our back on him. And what do we do then? We incur debt. He gives us good things. We ought to be thankful. We ought to use them in his service. We don't do so as we ought. And therefore, our debt is constantly increasing. God commands us, love me with all of your mind, soul, and strength. We fail to do it. We become indebted to God. God sets before us his will. He sets before us the purpose of the whole of creation and every aspect of our lives. And we fail. Daily we fail to maintain it. God gives us marvelous gifts. He gives to us families, parents, He gives us spouses, children. He gives us possessions. He gives us jobs. He gives us a church family. He gives us schools. All these marvelous gifts. And we take them for granted. We're not as thankful as we ought be. And so God gives us all of this. We don't honor him as we ought. And we become indebted to him. But rather than paying off that debt and increasing in our faithfulness, we find ourselves walking selfishly. We serve self. We love self. And our indebtedness to God then just continues to increase. And the idea is such that as we get older, that debt that we owe increases. So that 40, 50 years, we look back and that debt is growing. And then we get to be 80, 90 years old, we look back with shame. Sometimes we can't even understand how we can be saved. That debt is so large. We think of the sins of youth. We think of all of the transgressions. We think of our pride. We just become more and more aware of God's will and our failures regarding them. The result then is shame, humility. We cast our cares upon God and we acknowledge our dependence on Him. It would be like if we had a fancy race car that we were fixing up. And we brought it to a man and we paid a sum of money for him to get it all ready, get the engine all tuned up, get it all good to go. And we come back in a week and he'd say, I need more money. And so we give him more money. We come back in another week, oh, I need still more. And we keep giving him money. He becomes more and more indebted to us. And pretty soon our expectation then is growing as to what's required. So it is with us and God. God keeps giving us stuff. We fail in our appreciation and use of it rightly. And he keeps giving us more. And the result is that we increase then in that debt of gratitude that we owe unto him. And now we fall. We fail. And we realize then our debt. Forgive us our debt. You and I are missing the mark of God's glory. We're increasing our debt 
every single moment of every single day. That's how tragic it is. There are the sins of commission, things that we do that we know we shouldn't do. There's things of omission, things that we know we should be doing as parents, as spouses, as young people, as children, but we're not doing them. We know we should be praying more. We know that we should be in the Word increasingly, and yet we're not doing it. We're not doing what God requires of us. We know that we should be walking in forgiveness toward the neighbor. We know that we should be showing love and kindness toward those around us. The love of God isn't as present in our lives as it ought to be. So that we're not living in the consciousness of his love as we ought. The first thing when you wake up in the morning ought to be, what a wondrous love. What a marvelous God I have. What great things he's done for me. So that immediately we're moved to worship. We're moved to thanksgiving. We're moved to praise him. And then through the course of the day, the wonder of that salvation, the wonder of his goodness ought to be that which lives in our hearts and moves us continually to prayer, to devotion to God, and to honoring and magnifying him in everything that we do. So that through the course of the day, then we lie our heads down at night and what's the focus of our prayers? Thanks be to God for what great things he's done for me. We pray for forgiveness and we thank him that he was with us today and he was far more merciful and gracious than we deserve so that the whole of our life lived in the consciousness of the love of God and the marvelous character of that love in Jesus Christ. We're really skilled at acting like we're saints but then being engaged in horrendous sins. We're really skilled at separating portions of our life so that we harbor areas of sin that nobody else can see. God sees everything. God's watching. We can't hide anything from God. We know that something's wrong. We know we ought not do it. And what do we do? We do it. We know that it could have tremendous impact on our marriages, on our families, on our children. We do it. Why? Because our nature loves sin. Because we love ourselves. We delight in it. We want to do what we desire. And we don't trust God's word. We don't trust God's promises like we should if we're honest with ourselves. God says, follow me. Follow my pathways. All will be well. And we think, no, I think I know better than that. I think if I, if I do that, I'm going to have trouble. I might lose my job. I might lose my relationships. It's better that I compromise. It's better that I do something different. We love sin. We delight in it. And we find joy at times, tragically, in disobeying God's commands. And so now we come into God's presence and we say, forgive us. We ask that God not impute to us our transgressions. That is, that God not hold us accountable for that huge debt. Just one sin deserves hell. And now this whole pile, what does that deserve of me? An eternity of suffering. But we come into the presence of God and we pray that God forgive us. We're not just concerned about our actual sins we've committed. We're also concerned about our depravity. And we know that what makes our sin so serious is the fact that we're sinful. Our nature is depraved. It's given over to sin. There are sinful thoughts that need to be fought. And there is the sinful nature that has to be forgiven. And that depraved nature remains in us till we die. 
Now we know that the source of our sin is not some bad experiences, some childhood circumstance. We can't blame it on our parents or some other incident in our lives. We know that. The sin that is present within us is flowing from our depraved natures. And it's important in that regard that we reject all Pelagian ideas. Pelagian taught early on in the third and fourth centuries that man is born neutral. And the only possibility of sin then comes from the fact that he observes things or he has bad influences in his life and those then affect him and from that perspective he becomes sinful. We realize, no, our sinfulness is not due to influences around us. Man is not born neutral. We are born with that depravity that we inherited from Adam. We're born with original pollution and original guilt original sin. And we confess that the source of all evil then is present in our sinful nature. Even if we had not committed one sin, we would still be worthy of death because of the fact that we inherited those sins at birth. And so we realize not only our sin, but our sinfulness. And this prayer then rises out of our lips. Forgive us. It's necessary because we know what we deserve. What is it that you and I deserve? To be punished. We deserve the judgment of God. What did God say? The soul that sins, this soul must die. And we pray then that God not impute to me that depravity. That God not hold me accountable for that debt and for that sinful nature that I'm holding within me. Think that in that regard of the Belgic Confession and the handout that was given in Article 15, the last sentence there. Not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh, desiring to be delivered from this body of death. That's the fruit of God's grace in us. God makes it so that we sigh. We're burdened and we want to be delivered. And so we pray, forgive us. Now we need to understand very clearly what it is for which we pray when we pray this petition. We're not asking for objective forgiveness that is present in the mind of God. We realize that as far as God's elect people are concerned, they're the eternal objects of God's love. For instance, Numbers 23, 21. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Now we don't take that reference to Israel and Jacob to refer to everybody head for head in Israel and Jacob we realize God is speaking here of those who are according to the promise and talking about God's elect and that with regard to God's elect God from all eternity ordained their salvation and their deliverance and therefore from eternity God already has determined the wonder of that forgiveness God has chosen us from before the foundations of the world according to unconditional election not based on anything of ourselves. And then in time, he sent his son to die on the cross. And so at the moment of the cross, we were objectively forgiven as the children of God. The basis of our forgiveness. God from eternity ordaining it, the basis of it, Calvary. The moment that Jesus uttered that glorious word from the cross, it is finished. Everything was accomplished. That whole debt that you owed was paid off. 
and God accomplished the wonder of receiving the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We weren't even born yet. And yet God had atoned for all our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God had already determined from all eternity the wonder of our salvation. That's not what we pray for. Our prayers rise out of the fact of that wonder. They're on the basis of that. Because God saved us, we pray. But our prayer is that I need to know now in my heart the assurance of that wonder. I need to know that forgiveness personally so that it's not good enough for me just to believe that God loves his elect and that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. I need to know that I am one of those sinners and that my sins personally have been forgiven. Otherwise, I can't live in peace. I can't live in joy. I'm not going to experience happiness in my life. I know my debt. I'm aware of constantly accumulating that debt. And therefore, I need to know in my heart the assurance of forgiveness. That assurance of forgiveness is what we pray for here. Forgive us. That is, give me to know the wonder and the joy of that forgiveness. Give me to live out of that hope that is in Jesus Christ. And beloved, this is necessary more than anything else in your and my life. To know that I am righteous before God. And that God now looks upon me and God will not hold me accountable for my sin. He will not treat me as I deserve. But that I now know the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That my sin has been imputed to Jesus and his righteousness now is imputed to me. Credited to my account. This is the heart of the Christian life. And this is the most important truth for us to know. That I am saved and that I am forgiven. I might have no money. I might have no job. I might be in an extremely difficult situation. My health may be poor. But I'm forgiven. And knowing the wonder of forgiveness, I have that which is necessary to live and to die happily. Knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation. It is this truth that the writer to Hebrews considers of the highest importance. It is this knowledge that characterizes the whole really book of Hebrews. That Jesus Christ is the one who is primary. And that knowing Jesus Christ as the one through whom our salvation is found, we have life. And we have life more abundantly. The temptation during that time, as you recall, to go back to the laws of the Jews, to go back to Judaism, to think that if only we would go back to the sacrifices and do all of those things, then, then we would be able to be saved. And the apostle comes and says, no, by the inspiration of the Spirit, you have Jesus, and Jesus is higher than the angels. He's higher than Moses. He's higher than Aaron. Jesus is the one through whom salvation and atonement has been accomplished, and you need to look to him. The importance of that knowledge is set forth that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Almighty God. But when you know your sins are forgiven, you know all is well. You know that no matter what hardship, no matter what loss, Jehovah God in His faithfulness will preserve you and He will keep you now and to all eternity. And He's not only going to keep you, He's going to work everything together for your good. God is pleased to give us that blessed assurance of our forgiveness 
Now, it's never in our power to lay hold on it of ourselves, that we are sorry, that we repent, that we turn from sin, that we seek forgiveness, that we attain it. That's all the wonder of God's grace. And so Jesus teaches us, when you pray, pray, forgive us our debts. By his spirit, he works in us that awareness of that debt, that sorrow as a result of that debt. He works in us the knowledge of the spirit that God has chosen me and that I can come into his presence because he's my father. He's adopted me into his family. And he works in me the wonder then of repentance and leads me to the cross and gives me to know the wonder of redemption. The payment has been made. You've been covered. And now you know the forgiveness that is in the blood of Jesus Christ. God gives that blessed assurance. God works in us prayer, and God works in us the answer to that prayer. He gives us repentance and works in us sorrow for sin, and he gives us that spirit by which we do battle against sin, and we know the victory that is in him. Those who have sorrow for sin, those who come into the presence of God with a contrite heart, know this wonder. I'm forgiven. And they know it's nothing of themselves. It's not because they were so sorrowful. Their sorrow is never what it ought to be. They know that it's nothing because of themselves. It's not because I prayed. It's because only of God's eternal love and the wonder of the cross that I know this joy and this hope. This is a bold petition, beloved not to impute to us, poor sinners, our transgressions. It's a bold request, first of all, because we've not done anything to deserve it. We make this our petition completely apart from anything we deserve. It'd be easier for us to come with a gift. And isn't that what sometimes our children do? They've sinned against us. They know that we're upset with them. And so what do they try to do? They try to make it up. They try to make it up with a gift, a present. Maybe they color a picture for us. We even do this as spouses, don't we? We've sinned against each other. We know that there's an offense there, and so we try to cover it up with flowers or candies or whatever is necessary. Not to undermine the importance of those gifts, but repentance, I'm sorry, is that which God works within us. But think of God. What gift could we bring into the presence of God? Nothing. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. Our prayers often are not sincere as they ought. Where sorrow for sin is present, it often is not as sorrowful as it should be. We're not as sincere. The sorrow is not as deep as it ought to be. While we're requesting forgiveness, we're still loving that sin. Sometimes we have no intention even to turn from it tragically. We're concerned not about the sin sometimes, but we're more concerned about the consequences of it. If forgiveness was on the basis of something we did, we'd all be doomed. If forgiveness was on the basis of my sorrow or my repentance, my turning, we would be doomed. Our sins are so great and we sin so often that we often don't even remember to ask forgiveness for them. We go right back to our sin. The Proverbs have analogy for us there. Just like the dog returns to its vomit, we return back to our sins again. The point, beloved, is this. You know what you deserve, and I know what we deserve. We have taken a gift from God, and we continue to squander it. And now we can't bring anything to God that's going to please him. 
We can't try to return him what he's given us because we've squandered it. This is a bold petition because we come now into the presence of the Almighty God and we ask God to look at us and to view us as saints in whom there is no sin. How astounding. Now while I'm a sinner and while I'm sinning, forgive me and give me to know that there is no condemnation and that I am righteous. That's the request. We're not praying, God, give me that uh, when I get to heaven. We're saying, right now, right now, while I'm sinning against my wife, I'm sinning against my parents, I'm walking in so many different transgressions, right now, give me to know peace and the peace of believing that my sin, my transgression is forgiven and that I am righteous in thy sight. That's what Christ teaches us to do. Our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to stand in the presence of the Almighty God with all our filth and all of our corruption, all of our depravity, and to pray, forgive us our debts. Christ teaches us to do this, beloved. We would not be inclined to come into the presence of the Almighty God. And as we learn about God and we learn about His righteousness and His holiness and all of His attributes, we would be fearful. We would say, I don't dare go into His presence. If I come into His presence, He might strike me dead. Jesus says, come into His presence. And come into His presence with this bold prayer. Forgive me. That is, look upon me in mercy. Declare me righteous. Jesus says, do it on the basis of my sacrifice. Look at the blood that I shed. Look at the work that I performed on your behalf. Come into the presence of God with boldness and plead on the basis of what Christ did for you. Plead on the basis of his perfect work, that work by which Christ has redeemed you. He's bought you. He paid the price. And now he declares you righteous in him. For Christ's sake, beloved, we come. And we pray not just for forgiveness. We pray for God's favor, God's blessing to be upon us. What would you think of someone who kept spending your money, kept taking advantage of you every step of the way, kept borrowing money from you, never paying you back, and didn't seem to feel very bad about it? Seemingly no conscience incurring debt with no intent to pay. And then imagine if that person started pointing the finger at everybody else and saying, but look at how that person's doing. Look what that person's doing. That's you, beloved. That's me. Constantly incurring debts. And then having the audacity to point at fingers at others instead and try to make ourselves look more righteous. Jesus says, you are my children. Come into the presence of the Almighty God and do so with this boldness. Forgive my debts. We're not just praying for forgiveness. We desire the riches of salvation and the fullness of deliverance from sin, the righteousness of God. And we've got our eye of faith focused on the victory. We see that more fully in the next petitions. The love of God and the things of God's kingdom are that which mean the most to us and as we live in the midst of this life as the children of God we desire ultimately heaven 
where all the temptation, all the struggles, all the guilt, all the shame will be gone forever. Now, how can we make this bold petition? And how can we do so so confidently? We've already touched on it. But beloved, what makes this petition confident, what only makes this petition confident is the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice of our Lord. That's the glorious message of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. And God works in us as we look at our debt and as we look at what we owe him. This added confession, of whom I am chief. I'm not pointing the finger. I can't. I know myself. I know the things that I've done. The blood of Jesus Christ is the wonder alone by which our debt can be canceled. God can't just cancel debt. The debt needs to be paid. That's the point of our Lord Jesus Christ. He needs to pay the debt. He's a righteous, a just God, and sin needs to be paid for. It needs to be blotted out by the satisfying of his justice. And that's what Jesus came to do. Sin must be removed by bearing voluntarily the full punishment for sin and doing so in love. We could never satisfy that justice ourselves. We would never be able to withstand the judgment that would come. Atonement is necessary. And what is atonement? Atonement is satisfaction. The satisfaction of God's righteousness with respect to sin. Who can make that satisfaction? Who can make that payment? Not the blood of bulls and goats. Again, the book of Hebrews addresses that again and again. Those sacrifices. How important they were, but they couldn't atone. They couldn't make payment. Those sacrifices were always pointing to the sacrifice of the lamb, the one who alone could give his life and would do so as the perfect sacrifice. The heart and essence of the atonement that God is satisfied. And that one thing that's necessary, a perfect obedience, willingly, lovingly, taking upon himself the full wrath of God in order that he might sacrifice himself on the altar of God's justice and then cover all the transgressions of his children. No sinner can ever do that. No sinner would be able to withstand. But we read in 2 Corinthians 5, or in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What was God doing at the cross? God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking upon himself the full burden of sin as the sinless one, and doing so for us and in our place. He came to do the will of his heavenly Father. And again, this is the beauty of the book of Hebrews, to point the saints to Christ and his perfect sacrifice, to point us to Jesus Christ as the high priest, Verse 10 here states, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What does that mean? There's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing left for me to do to make payment for our sin. It's finished. Hence the folly of those who think or teach that we need to do something yet. Whether it's that we're going to suffer after we die in some kind of experience or whether there's some works that are necessary. 
is Jesus the complete Savior or not? We confess Jesus Christ is the complete Savior. He did it all. He was the head of the elect, the one who represented his people. And by his perfect sacrifice, he took upon himself all our sin, all our debt, and he paid. He paid it because while he suffered the anguish, the torments of the wrath of God on Calvary, he still loved God. He still served God. And he demonstrated his glory to his heavenly Father. He did it perfectly. Even while the wages of God against sin were being poured out upon him and God's wrath being upon him, he loved God with a perfect heart. And he did so for your and for my salvation. He was the suffering servant who died in your and my place. At the foot of the cross, we find pardon. We find full forgiveness. Not one part of the debt remains. It is finished. And that's the beauty of the Lord's day. It's the beauty of our entering into the rest that is ours in Christ. What is that rest? Again, we've mentioned this before repeatedly. All our life, there are unfinished tasks. Always there's something that we've not done as well as we ought to. And every day we get up and there's more that we need to do. But not with regard to the forgiveness of your sin. Jesus Christ accomplished it. He performed the wonder by which your sins are forgiven. And we read in verse 17, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. No more. God looks upon us as those who are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we struggle, don't we? We're experiencing hardship or trials or afflictions and we think, it's because of that sin I committed. It's because of this I did or that. No, God is not treating you in wrath. He's not treating you as one who is deserving of that wrath. God is treating you in love. Beloved, we take this petition upon our lips so often without understanding the marvelous character of it. Forgive us our debts. So astonishing, so amazing that Jehovah God is willing to perform that wonder in our lives. And by faith, we lay hold on it. God works the faith in our hearts. That's set forth again and again in our confessions. Belgic Confession, Article 21, whereby we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We count all things but loss and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this only sacrifice, once offered, by which believers are made perfect forever. This is also the reason why he was called by the angel of God, Jesus, that is to say, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. God works the grace by which we know Christ, and we, by faith, lay hold on him as our Lord and our Savior. We believe that the death of Jesus Christ is the only ground, the only foundation on which I can base my prayer. God gave Jesus for me in sheer love, all of grace. There's no other reason. And of God then, and through God alone, is the blessing of reconciliation through the blood of the cross. God not only sent Jesus to die for me, God gives me the gift of faith so that I can lay hold on him and I can experience the joy of that work. 
And that comes out also in Article 22 of Faith in Jesus Christ in the Belgian Confession. However, to speak more clearly, we don't mean that faith itself justifies us, for it's only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all his merits and so many holy works, which he has done for us and in our stead, is our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which, when they become ours, are more than sufficient to quit us of our sins. Lord willing, next week we look at that serious limiting clause that Jesus adds as we forgive our debtors. But beloved, in boldness and confidence, we take upon ourselves and the admonition of verse 22 here. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Praying for the grace to live in the conscious wonder of what great things God has done for us. And to pray this petition with meaning and with boldness. Believing that Jesus Christ is the one to whom we owe our all. Beloved, if only we were more conscious of what Jesus has done for us and living in the consciousness of it, we would not be so fearful. We would not be so hesitant to come into the presence of God. We would not be plagued by such despair at times and such depression as a result of our sin. Living more fully in the consciousness of what Christ has done for us, we are thankful. And that thankfulness is expressed by obedience. We close with the words of verses 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things thou hast done for us. As we grow in our consciousness of our sin, our depravity, our unworthiness, may we know Jesus Christ as the one through whom alone we have the victory. May the blood of Jesus Christ be that which is our treasure and our comfort. And may we live in the conscious wonder of what great, wondrous mercy thou hast shown toward us in him. Amen.